Section 12 of Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.K. Edison, New Jersey. Little Journeys to the Homes of American Statesmen by Albert Hubbard. Section 12. John Quincy Adams. Part 1. To the guidance of the legislative councils, to the assistance of the executive and subordinate departments, to the friendly cooperation of the respective state governments, to the candid and liberal support of the people, so far as it may be deserved by honest industry and zeal, I shall look for whatever success may attend my public service, and knowing that, quote, except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh in vain, end quote, with fervent supplications for his favour, to his overruling providence I commit, with humble but fearless confidence, my own fate and the future destinies of my country. Inaugural Address Nine miles south of Boston, just a little back from the escalloped shores of Old Ocean, lies the village of Braintree. It is on the Plymouth Post Road, being one of that string of settlements built a few miles apart for better protection, that lined the sea, Boston being crowded and Plymouth full to overflowing, the home seekers spread out north and south. In 1620, when the first cabin was built at Braintree, land that was not in sight of the coast had actually no value. Back a mile, all was a howling wilderness, with trails made by wild beasts or savage men as wild. These paths led through tangles of fallen trees and tumbled rocks, beneath dark overhanging pines where winter's snows melted not till midsummer and the sun's rays were strange and alien men who sought to traverse these ways had to crouch and crawl or climb through them no horse or ox or beast of burden had carried its load but up from the sea the ground rose gradually for a mile and along this slope that faced the tide wind and storm had partly cleared the ground and on the hillsides our forefathers made their homes. The houses were built facing either the east or the south. This persistence to face either the sun or the sea shows a last strange rudiment of paganism, making queer angles, now that surveyors have come with Gunter's chain and transit, laying out streets and doing the work. A mile out north of Braintree on the Boston Road came, in 1625, one Captain Wollaston, a merry white and thirty boon companions, all of whom probably left England for England's good. They were in search of gold and pelf, and all were agreed on one point. They were quite too good to do any hard work. The camp was called Mount Wollaston, or the Merry Mound. Our gallant gentlemen cultivated the friendship of the Indians in the hope that they would reveal the caves and caverns where the gold grew lush and nuggets cumbered the way and the Indians, liking the drink they offered, brought them meal and corn and furs. And so the thirty set up a maypole, adorned with buck's horns, and drank and feasted, and danced like fairies of furies, the live-long day or night. So scandalously did these exiled lots behave, that good folks made a wide circuit round to avoid their camp. Preaching had been in vain, and prayers for the conversion of the wretches remained unanswered. So the neighbors held a convention and decided to send Captain Miles Standish with a Parsi to teach the merry men manners. 
Standish appeared among the Bacchanalians one morning, perfectly sober, and they were not. He arrested the captain and bade the others be gone. The leader was shipped back to England with compliments and regrets, and the thirty scattered. This was the first move in that quarter in favour of local option. Six years later, the land thereabouts was granted and apportioned out to Reverend John Wilson, William Coddington, Edward Quincy, James Penniman, Moses Payne, and Francis Elliot. And these men and their families built houses and founded, quote, the North Precinct of the Town of Braintree, end quote. Between the North Precinct and the South Precinct, there was continual rivalry. Boys who were caught over the deadline, which was marked by Deacon Penniman's house, had to fight. Thus things continued until 1792, when one John Adams was Vice President of the United States. Now, this John Adams, lawyer, was a son of John Adams, honest farmer and codwainer, who had bought the Penniman homestead, and whose progenitor, Henry Adams, had moved there in 1636. John Adams, Vice President, afterwards President, was born there in the Penniman House, and was regarded as a neutral, although he had been thrashed by boys both from the North and from the South precinct. But at the last, there is no such thing as neutrality. John Adams sided with the boys from the North precinct, and now that he was in power, it occurred to him, having had a little experience in the revolutionary line, that for the North Precinct to secede from the great town of Braintree would be but proper and right. The North Precinct had six stores that sold W.I. goods, and a tavern that sold W.E.T. goods, and it should have a post office of its own. So John Adams suggested the matter to Richard Cranch, who was his brother-in-law and near neighbour. Cranch agitated the matter, and the new town, which was the old, was incorporated. They called it Quincy, probably because Abigail, John's wife, insisted upon it. She had named her eldest boy Quincy in honour of her grandfather, whose father's name was Quincy, and who had relatives who spelled it de Quincy, one of which tribe was an opium eater. Now, when Abigail made a suggestion, John usually heeded it for Abigail was as wise as she was good, and John well knew that his success in life had come largely from the help, counsel, and inspiration vouchsafed to him by this splendid woman. And the man who will not let a woman have her way in all such small matters as naming of babies or towns is not much of a man. So the town was named Quincy, and brother-in-law Cranch was appointed its first postmaster. Shortly after, the Boston Sentinel contained a sarcastic article over the signature, quote, old subscriber, end quote, concerning the distribution of official patronage among kinsmen, and the Elliots and the Everetts gossiped over their back fences. At this time, Abigail lived in the cottage there on the Plymouth Road, halfway between Braintree and Quincy, but she got her mail at Quincy. The Adams cottage is there now, and the next time you are in Boston, you had better go out and see it, just as June and I did, one bright October day. June has lived within an hour's ride of the Adams home all her blessed thirty-two sunshiny summers. She also boasts a Mayflower ancestry, with, however, a slight infusion of Castle Garden, like myself, to give firmness of fibre, and yet she had never been to Quincy. The John and Abigail Cottage was built in 1716, so says a truthful brick found in the quaint old chimney. 
Deacon Penniman built this house for his son, and it faces the sea, although the older Penniman house faces the south. John Adams was born in the older house, but when he used to go to Weymouth every Wednesday and Saturday evening to see Abigail Smith, the minister's daughter, his father, the worthy shoemaker, told him that when he got married, he could have the other house for himself. John was a bright young lawyer then, a graduate of Harvard, where he had been sent in hopes that he would become a minister, for one half of the students then at Harvard were embryo preachers. But John did not take to theology. He had witnessed ecclesiastical tennis and theological pitch and toss and braintree that had nearly split the town, and he decided on the law. One thing sure, he could not work. He was not strong enough for that, everybody said so. And right here seems a good place to call attention to the fact that weak men, like those who are threatened, live long. John Adams' letters to his wife reveal a very frequent reference to liver complaint, lung trouble, and that tired feeling, yet he lived to be ninety-two. The Reverend Mr. Smith did not at first favor the idea of his daughter Abigail marrying John Adams. The Adams family were only farmers and shoemakers when it rained, while the Smiths had aristocracy on their side. He said lawyers were men who got bad folks out of trouble and good folks in. But Abigail said that this lawyer was different, and as Mr. Smith saw it was a love match, and such things being difficult to combat successfully, he decided he would do the next best thing, give the young couple his blessing. Yet the neighbors were quite scandalized to think that their pastor's daughter should hold converse over the gate with a lawyer, and they let the clergyman know it, as neighbors then did, and sometimes do now. Then did the Reverend Mr. Smith announce that he would preach a sermon on the sin of meddling with other folks' business. As his text, he took the passage from Luke, 7th chapter, 33rd verse, quote, For John came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and ye say he hath a devil. End quote. The neighbors saw the point. For a short time before, when the eldest daughter, Mary, had married Richard Cranch, the man who was to achieve a post office, the community had entered a protest, and the Reverend Mr. Smith had preached from Luke, 10th chapter, 42nd verse, quote, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. End quote. So there, now. And John and Abigail were married one evening at early candlelight in the church at Weymouth. The good father performed the ceremony and nearly broke down during it, they say, and then he kissed both bride and groom. The neighbors had repaired to the parsonage and were eating and drinking and making merry when John and Abigail slipped out by the back gate and made their way hand in hand in the starlight down the road and ran through the woods to Braintree. When near the village, they cut across the pasture lot and reached their cottage, which for several weeks they had been putting in order. John unlocked the front door, and they entered over the big, flat stone at the entry, and over which you may enter now, all sunken and worn by generations of men gone. Some whose feet have pressed that doorstep we count as a salt of the earth, for their names are written large on history's page. Washington rode out there on horseback, and while his aide held his horse, he visited and drank mulled cider and ate doughnuts within. Hancock came often, and Otis, Samuel Adams, and Loring used to enter without plying the knocker. Through the earnest work of William G. Spear, the cottage has now been restored and fully furnished, as near like it was then, as knowledge, fancy, and imagination can devise. 
when we reached quincy we saw a benevolent looking old puritan and june said ask him can you tell me where we can find mr spear the antiquarian i inquired the witch said the son of priscilla mullins mr spear the antiquarian i repeated it's not bill spear who keeps a second-hand shop you want maybe yes i think that is the man and so we were directed to the quote second-hand shop unquote, which proved to be the rooms of the quincy historical society and there we saw such a wondrous collection of second-hand stuff that as we looked and looked and mr spear explained and gave large slices of colonial history june who is a daughter of the american revolution gushed a trifle more than was meet nothing short of a hundred years will set the seal of value on an article for mr spear and one hundred fifty is more like it on his walls are hats caps spurs boots and accoutrements used in the revolutionary war then there are candlesticks snuffers spectacles butter moles bonnets dresses shoes baby stockings cradles rattles aprons butter tubs made out of a solid piece shovels to match andirons pokers skillets and blue china galore bill spear himself is quite a curiosity he traces a lineage to the well-known lieutenant seth spear of revolutionary fame and back of that to john alden who spoke for himself the bark on the antiquarian is rather rough and i regret to say that he makes use of a few words i cannot find in the century dictionary but as june was not shocked i managed to stand it on further acquaintance i concluded that mr spear's brusqueness was assumed and that beneath the tough husk there beats a very tender heart he is one of those queer fellows who do good by stealth and abuse you roundly if accused of it for twenty-five years mr spear has been doing little else but studying colonial history and making love to old ladies who own clocks and skillets given them by their great-grandmamas there is no doubt that spear has dictated clauses in a hundred wills devising that william g spear custodian of the quincy historical society shall have snuffers and biscuit moulds at first mr spear collected for his own amusement and benefit but the trouble grew upon him until it became chronic and one fine day he realized that he was not immortal and when he should die all his collection which had taken years to accumulate would be scattered and so he founded the quincy historical society incorporated by a perpetual charter with charles francis adams grandson of john quincy adams as first president then the next thing was to secure the cottage where john and abigail adams began housekeeping and where john quincy was born this house has been in the adams family all these years and been rented to the firm of tom dick and harry and any of their tribe who would agree to pay ten dollars a month for its use and abuse just across the road from the cottage lives a fine old soul by the name of john crane mr crane is somewhere between seventy and a hundred years old but he has a young heart a face like gladstone and a memory like a copy-book mr crane was on very good terms with john quincy adams knew him well and had often seen him come here to collect rent he told me that during his recollection the adams place had been occupied by full forty families but now thanks to bill spear it is no longer for rent the house has been raised from the ground new sills placed under it and while every part scantling rafter joist cross-beam lath and weatherboard of the original house has been retained it has been put in such order that it is no longer going to ruin 
from the ample stores of his various antiquarian depositories mr spear has refurnished it and with a ripe knowledge and rare good taste and restraining imagination the cottage is now shown to us as a colonial farmhouse of the year seventeen hundred fifty the wonder to me is that mr spear being human did not move his quote, second-hand shop end quote, down here and make of the place a curiosity shop but he has done better end of section twelve